Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake, uh, and welcome to those of you watching online or on replay. Uh, we're so glad that you are here. We are on part three of a four-part conversation about the integration of faith and work, uh, taking what you believe and figuring out what it means and how you live it out in the workplace. And by that, I definitely do not mean, and please don't take it to mean, uh, making sure that you wear Christian t-shirts to work uh, or listen to Spotify worship playlists on a medium volume uh, or start staff meetings off with prayer, like whatever. That's not that's not what I'm asking you to do. But I do think that there should be some sort of a, a, an impact uh, between uh, what you believe and, and what you spend a majority of your day doing. I can't imagine a faith that would not have some sort of a say on how you spend a majority of your day. Um, uh, And I I wanted to preface this too by saying, uh, or this entire series really, um, anytime I do a series that is on a particular season of life for for people and uh, people who aren't currently in that season of life, uh, can oftentimes sometimes check out. Like if I do a series on relationships, I make sure it's on relationships and on marriage because we have a lot of people uh, within our church community are like, I'm not married. So how long did you say this marriage series is? And I'll be like four weeks and they're like, see you in five weeks, right? Um, and uh, I don't want that to be the case. And when it comes to work too, there are people who are in a season where it's different, right? Uh, there's an unemployment piece. There's a, I just transferred jobs. I, I work from home or I, I do this or or I'm retired. I, I attended uh, somebody's house, uh, a party at somebody's birthday party the other night at somebody's house. And uh, Greg McDowell, who uh, goes to the church uh, and uh, goes, hey, uh, are you still, he's, he's this retired old guy, right? Are you still, uh, I can say that, he's not here. Are you, uh, are you still doing that series on work? And I said, yep. And he's like, all right. And, uh, and I haven't seen him today. So I think he self-excluded himself uh, uh, from coming. And that's fine, because he usually sits in the front row and, ha- and kind of falls asleep. So I, I, I know he's not here this morning. <laughs> So um, uh, anyways, Greg, if you're watching this from home, we, we miss you, buddy, and, and thanks, for, thanks for tuning in. But um, anyways, I, I would invite you, even if, even if that's the kind of a category for you, you say, oh, work, like that's, um, I love my job, so this is irrelevant. I, I know, but like, think about it through the lens of what takes my, a majority of my time, my energy, and a lot of times when we, 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 we wrap up so much of our identity and our self-worth in what we are able to do. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a big piece of, of the work piece. And oftentimes we find fulfillment or satisfaction in life where we equate that with satisfying work. Um, and so uh, I, 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 I want to think through whatever lens you need to do to figure that out for, for yourself if it's, not an, if it's not an easy way to, to find this piece out. And, and I, I, I've always loved talking about work. We've done this church thing for... Coming up on 12 years, our birthday is like next week, guys, uh, October 10th, 2010, so uh, was when we kicked this thing off. So in 12 years, I've done like five or six series on work, because it just feels like a conversation. People continue to be frustrated with their work and what they do, and I, I've always thought, um, man, if this pastor thing didn't work out, I could, I would love to talk people through uh, work issues, because there's always a market for it. Um, and... 
we've said that on this side of the pandemic, there's also new things that come up as part of the conversation that you continually have about. We've always been frustrated with work, but on this side of the pandemic, when we had a period where uh, perhaps you know work slowed down, we've always said, oh man, life would be better when work slows down. Well, work slowed down for you, right? Well, if I didn't have to be here, I'm like not productive so many hours a day because I got people coming to my office and always asking me for things. If I could just work from home, well, then you got to work from home, right? Well, now it's like, now, I, now I'm, I never see anybody and there's you know, all, kinds of, all kinds of different things. We've had to kind of rethink a few things. So on this side of it, rethinking our handoff, that's how Kyle kicked it off last week, uh, rethinking the point, uh, the overall point of work. And today, uh, rethinking sort of the product is, is the, 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 the way that I want to take uh, the angle for our conversation or part of our conversation today. Uh, rethinking our product. Next week is, is rethinking the payoff, and it's the conclusion of the series, which means communion and the end of a series. And then finally, on to a new topic uh, after that. So... That's the layout and the plan. Uh, but I want to talk about rethinking the product for a, a few minutes today during our time together. And what I mean by product is uh, the, the thing that you do. What is it that you do? And so I, I, I want to uh, go through three quick questions to kind of frame the, the patchwork or the lens by which I want uh, to view this thing. Um, so question number one, uh, and it's gonna, they're going to get progressively... I don't know, worse, I don't know, deeper into this mess and deeper into the rabbit hole. Uh, but the question number one is one of my favorite questions. I love it so much. It says, what would you say you do around here? What would you say you do around here? And if, that's, if that question sounds familiar, it's from one of my favorite movies of all time called Office Space. It's a fantastic way to kick off any sort of you know, quarterly evaluation or staff evaluation. Uh, and by that, I'm saying tongue in cheek, please don't do that. But uh, it, 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 it be, it's horrifying to hear as an employee when somebody goes, what would you say you do around here, right? It's a, uh, it, it, but it's, it's a question that for you, uh, when it comes to your line of, uh, of work or what you spend a majority of your time, energy, passion, interest doing, what is it that you do? Uh, and, and for some of us, um, it's going to be hard to talk about you know, this because we are, there's a lack of clarity even amongst ourselves. I'm not even sure what it is that I do. I mean, I can tell you what I do, but I don't understand the big picture of how it makes any sort of connection to this. For some people, it's really easy. You say, I teach kids, right? I make fences, I dig holes, I serve tables, or I crunch numbers and put spreadsheets together. Some, sometimes it's really easy to make these things happen, but sometimes... Uh, it's not. Maybe you have one of those jobs where it is hard to put into words, uh, and or you're married to somebody like that. And so they say, what does your wife do? What does your husband do? And you're like, I don't really know. She leaves, and then she comes back a few hours later, and there's money in our checking account. So whatever it is, it's very productive. But I, you know, he's told me, but I just, if I, I'm, I'm going to say it, but then even when I'm saying it, it's not really true. Or, or for you, you, you live, you do one of those jobs that you try to explain to somebody and there's more questions that come than answers. And so you're like, you've come up with some alternative. You've come up with other, some sort of phrase. You're like, I do this. And it's not really what you do, but it changes the conversation quickly, which is the goal. So that makes a lot of people, uh, it makes sense. But you should know what it is that you do. And you should be able to see a big picture about what it, and, and, and so if you're in, if you're in a spot where this is a tough one, if this is the first gate or the first hurdle that you can't get over, then you have just figured out your homework for this week. Find out what it is that you do, okay? Which should be an easy one, but the, the, it, as, I, as I mentioned, it gets progressively harder. So what would you say that you do? Here's what I do. Great, now that we've got that figured out, question number two is this. Does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world. A little bit more difficult, a little bit more, <laughs> right? 
Uh, does, yeah, exactly. So sometimes it's really easy to figure this thing out. In fact, I mentioned last week, I'm going through uh, a book in preparation for the series um, called uh, BS Jobs by a cultural anthropologist guy. Uh, and he, and uh, it's not the name of the book, but there are a few high school students in here. So I figured that's, uh, I'll just call it that. Anyways, uh, and in it, he takes a, uh, he's a UK author who takes a poll from thousands of people in, in preparation for this. It was a, it started out as an article for one of the newspapers. And then it was, there was so much, dirt there that he made it into a full-size book. But uh, the, the book prefacer starts off with this question. And in response, the poll numbers came out like this. 50% of the people who took this thing said, yes, I think that what I do day in and day out makes a meaningful contribution to the world. And maybe you're sitting there going, that seems high, or maybe that seems low. Maybe it, it, it seems high if you find yourself saying no. And if it seems low, it's probably because you love your job. And you're like, I think everybody should do what I do, right? And you're like, how do you, why would you ever work in a job that doesn't make a meaningful contribution to the world. I know, crazy, right? Uh, anyways, 50% of people said yes, uh, which and 37% of people said no. 37% of people took this evaluation, anonymous thing. They didn't. It wasn't like their their boss or supervisor was going to hear about the response, or there was going to be a meeting afterwards to talk through this. But 37% of people said what I do means nothing, is not a meaningful contribution to the world. And 13% said, what was the question? Like what, I, I, I don't even understand. Uh, and perhaps their no is so strong that they just tuned out the question much like they tune out the rest of their work. So there's a good chance that it was a 50-50 sort of response uh, to this. Now you can chalk some of that up to bad data uh, because every one of us have bad days and it could be just the day that I decided to take the quiz. Um, but uh, th- there's, that's, a, that's a healthy reality for a lot of people. I know exactly what it is that I do. I'm just not proud of it because I don't feel like it makes any sort of meaningful contribution um, to uh, the world, right? Question number three, it goes on a little bit further. If you just decided not to show up for work tomorrow or this week or whatever, would anybody notice and would anybody care? You might get an email, you might get a phone call, where are you? It's three o'clock, you're supposed to be here. But there are plenty of people who go, I could just sit and like, this would be another question. If Could I physically show up to work, not do anything, and would anybody care? If these reports don't get filed, nobody reads, reads these reports anyways. I, I, I take things, I take figures, I punch them into these things, and I just send it off. And it's some boss somewhere goes, good, the report's been filed, we're good to go. And they never even open it and look at it. I could type in Mickey Mouse letters in this whole thing, and it would probably get approved, stamped on, and, and, and move on, right? That is a new depth of it. Not only do I not really perhaps know what it is that I do, or and, and I definitely don't think it's a meaningful product, but then all, all of a sudden, um, anybody could do what I do. That's, that's a phrase people use. Anybody could do what it, a, a, a monkey could do what I do. Uh, or if I decided just to not show up today or, or whatever this week uh, or not show up, maybe show up physically, but not show up mentally to this thing, I don't even think anybody would notice this. And, and some of that um, is, again, on this side of the pandemic, we've had a, a chance to kind of see some of these things. You've showed up to some places, some businesses, uh, and they've said, hey, we're a bit short-staffed today. Things aren't going to work out, and, or this isn't going to, you know, this isn't going to be, uh, you're not going to get the service that you expect. Please be kind to the people who did show up for work. I mean, I've seen signs like that at coffee shops around here because all of a sudden people have dealt with this question and been like, that's kind of where I'm at, and that's what I'm uh, sort of doing. This can sort of, this can lead, a, a negative question, um, or I guess a positive question, but in a negative way, to these three questions can lead us into a spot where we have a deep irony about our work, a particular sort of despair, 
Because I believe that there is something especially sinister about, about fruitless endeavors. I'm, I, I, because I'm, I'm a Christian and all that kind of stuff, and, and I'm, I'm trying to work through this, I believe that you were created by a God who not only did the creation piece and created the world, uh, but also then uh, and symbolically on that sixth or seventh day or whatever, invited us into kind of filling the earth and subdue it and having dominion over it and invited us into the creative process, which is why I think that you have a responsibility. The reason you feel so fulfilled about having dominion in your home when you make a house a home, when and you make it to be like, I, I don't just live here. Like, this is an extension of me. I don't just work here. This is an extension of me. You're having dominion over that. And that's what you were called to do. And I think that that's great. And I think that it's the reason it's so filling is, fulfilling is because you were created to do that, to feel like that, to work like that. That's the kind of work that you were created to do. And when you don't have that, when there's an absence of that or a lack of that, there's especially something sinister about fruitless endeavors. We find ourselves doing things to no for no reason, for, no, for nothing. Like this report doesn't do anything ab- about changing the world or whatever, uh, or, or making this place uh, a better place. Once while serving time in exile in a Siberian prison camp, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist and one of the favorites of mine, he wrote Brothers Karamazov, he wrote Crime and Punishment, probably something you read uh, in high school or college or whatever, but um, he, uh, he got sentenced. People didn't like, the, the people in power in, in Russia didn't like the amount of power that he had over people. His writings would affect so many thousands of people that it was like, if he ever turned against us in, in authority, then we would have a mutiny on our hands. Uh, and so therefore um, he, he began to kind of be mistreated and, and sent off and Tolstoy, same thing. But anyways, um, he got sent to a Siberian prison and he developed in that prison or as a result of kind of writing after the fact, a theory that the worst kind of torture one could possibly devise would be to force somebody to endlessly perform an obviously pointless task, to endlessly perform an obviously pointless task. This would be something that later on in the Nazi regime during Nazi prison camps, this would be the case. They would say, go dig a hole over here. Now that that hole is dug, dig a hole over here, put the dirt that you just dug over here, put it in that hole. It's like this endlessly pointless task. They're working, but it's like, it just does something with our brains to be like, I'm doing this, but there's nothing to look at and be like, I did this. It has a function. And now this hole serves a purpose. This serves absolutely no purpose. There is something especially sinister about fruitless pointless task, endlessly performing an obviously pointless task, which for some of you, I mean, you see this and you go, that's Tuesday. That's what I call Tuesday and like a little bit of Wednesday and sometimes every other Thursday because I'm just, that's what I I do. And, And you wouldn't equate it to Siberian labor work, but you know what I mean? Not that far off, maybe. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, even though convicts sent to Siberia had theoretically been sentenced to hard labor, he observed that the work wasn't actually that hard. Most peasants worked far harder. But the difference was peasants were working at least partly for themselves. And in prison, the hardness of the labor was that the fact uh, that the laborer got absolutely nothing out of it. And in an extended quote that I'll read from you that comes from his book called House of the Dead, it says this, it once came into my head that if it were desired to reduce a man to nothing to punish him atrociously, to crush him in such a manner that the most hardened murderer would tremble before such a punishment. It would only be necessary to give to his work a character of complete uselessness, even to absurdity. Let him be constrained to pour water from one vessel into another, to pound sand, to move a a heap of earth from one place to another, and then immediately move it back again, again, that fruitless endeavor. And then I am persuaded at the end of a few days, the prisoner would uh, hang himself for committing or 
commit a thousand capital crimes, preferring rather to die than to endure such humiliation, shame, and torture. And you see that, and you hear that, and you read that, and you look at like World War II history stuff, and you see some of that take place in those camps. And then you think about your job, and you go, okay, all right, my job is not that bad, right? But it's, you know, it's bad. Anyways, and you find yourself somewhere between perhaps the answer to question number two and question number three of I'm, I can connect, uh, I have a hard time connecting uh, what I do to any sort of meaningful contribution to society, uh, but I do think that if I didn't show up, like there would be something to get done uh, that didn't get done or whatever. So we, we, we're somewhere in this spectrum of things, most likely, unless you love your job, in which case... Uh, this is just a you know uh, peek into the depravity of the rest of us about how we view our work, right? Um, but as humans, then what we do is we adapt and we survive in this. We're, we're, that's what we're known for. We uh, we see this. We we see fruitless work. Um, we we are given jobs that we seemingly don't mean anything, and so we we adapt. Um, we have learned, maybe you as well, have to stop putting so much hope into your vocation. You got into a you watched Dead Poets Society and School of Rock as a kid, and you thought, I want to be a teacher. That's what I want to do. And then you got into a classroom. You did all the schooling. You did all the things. You showed up in the classroom, and these kids are absolute turds, and they're not changing. They, like, you know, in that hour and a half movie, they became awesome at the end, and these kids just, like, aren't. You know what I mean? And you're like, adapt and survive, adapt and survive. And so the hopes that you came into it in year one, year two, year three of teaching, now you've been doing it for nine, 10, 11 years. You see all the rookies show up on the first day and you smile and you laugh and they have so, they're so full of joy. And you think, you just wait, you'll be here. We'll all be together. It'll be fine. You know what I mean? This is how we do. Um, so you stop putting hope in your vocation. You wanted to be a scientist, but nobody ever taught you office politics in any labs. You just loved the work for it, but all of a sudden, other things got involved in this. Your current job and the degree associated with your education perhaps don't match, right? You have, you have this job and then, and then a, decree, a, you know, a degree that means nothing in this line of work, and so you dread the conversation at parties that says, so what'd you go to school for? And you're like, well, you're never gonna believe this, but... Here's what I went to school for, and here's what I find myself doing. Part of the adapt and survive uh, mentality is shifting our thoughts about our work away from making a mark in this world, because we all start in college and we're taught because we watch these movies that have great soundtracks that say, you can make a difference in the world, right? If you just put your heart to it and you can do anything you want to be. And we shifted away from that to how much money can I make in as little time as possible? And uh, how can I get to the spot in the the... the the clicks, the articles that we click on, and the reason we know that is because they keep showing up on New York Times or Wall Street Journal, whatever it is that you read, saying, how much do I need to save before retirement? How much do I need to save? There's articles that talk about this is what a beer retirement looks like. This is what a wine retirement looks like. This is what champagne looks like, right? You figure out which window you want to land on. Here's how long you'd have to work in order to achieve those things or have a bottom line on that stuff. And the reason those articles keep getting produced is because they keep getting clicked on because we are obsessed with, at this point, have moving on, adapting and surviving away from meaningful work into how can I make the most amount of money in as little time as possible to get to what I want to do. So what, if that is the case, and if that's true for us, what does the Bible have to say about any of this? The reason we gather together uh, on, on, on Wednesday, you know, or on, on Sunday mornings, is that what date is? I'm just losing time. On Sunday mornings uh, is because we, we have try, are trying to be a community that say, all right, Jesus taught a unique, a unique way of doing life. Uh, what would it look like if we gathered together on a semi-regular basis? 
once, twice, three times a month, whatever it is that you make it, and discern and adapt and, and try and challenge ourselves and our current way of thinking what the world tells us this is the way you should live versus here's what Jesus uh, w- would say uh, life looks like um, or the, the better way of doing things. What if you did it in this way? Uh, and I think that Jesus has a way uh, that goes kind of counterintuitive uh, or against the grain of this sort of, if you're just resolved to just adapt and whatever, survive in this, um, I think there's an invitation into something different. I think that, that that thing that was in you that's like, yeah, but like, I want to be creative. I want to do something. I want to I want to make meaningful work. Why, why is it that when we read like question number two, like it's kind of almost depressing to see some of the results of the survey to be like, that's not how it should be. That's not how it ought to be. What is that ought thing inside of you? Why is, why is there something that goes, I'm depressed by that number? Or um, I see it, I know it's true, but that's not how it should be. W- what is that? Where does that sort of come from? That's what I want to talk about. I think that it shows up a little bit for us. I want to read uh, uh, a passage or look at a verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. One of the early church documents that survived antiquity is a letter uh, or a version or a copy of said letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in a series of correspondence with a church in Corinth. The city was named Corinth. The letters were called First and Second Corinthians. They show up in the New Testament part of your Bible. Uh, first and second, because there's two of them that we have. There was probably a few more based on what we know about the conversation and what he said in my previous letter, and we don't have that letter, so obviously that means there were probably more letters than that. Um, and what we know about his relationship with his church is that he had a hand in sort of starting this thing, and it appears like he served as some sort of external advisor or elder or board member to this church. And so they write him letters asking him advice about, hey, this is happening in our church. What do you think we should do about it? And so he writes back a few times saying, don't do this, definitely do this, don't do this. And, and so, and we kind of have a similar sort of government layout for us as well. You heard from one of our external advisor board members uh, last week via video, Jeremiah. Um, so that's the, a section. And um a lot of times in Corinth, the church seems to be a, a little bit, um, a little bit wild and a little bit extreme and a little bit all out there. Corinth was a very wealthy city. Um, the church seems to be a little bit um, immature in some areas and belief systems, and and very much uh, a. Um, uh, syncretistic or, or they saw the way of the world and were trying to incorporate it into some church things as well. So they, they're not living out distinctness among their Christian faith. It's, it's kind of like we take what we know and we carry it into this sort of thing. And so um, he has some pretty aggressive words of, hey, I've heard that this happened in your church. This does not belong in there at all. Are you kidding me? Um, and in chapter seven, he has specific words uh, for people who find themselves married. Um, So he's talking about sexual immorality in chapter six, and then he's going to go into what that means for married people. So he goes into very practical uh, admonishments for if, and the the category is if you find yourself married, right? Or, and then he also says, if you find yourself single, do I, you know, here's, here's words of advice for single people. Here's words of advice for married people. If you find yourself married to somebody who is not a Christian, you're a Christian, but he's not, uh, then here's what would, should happen. If, if, if uh, you're not a Christian, but you find yourself married to a Christian, these would be my, so all kinds of scenario sort of stuff, which makes sense. He's sort of anticipating our human nature, which is when we hear words of advice from people, when we read a book or attend a seminar and somebody's given a, here, here's what I would do. 
um, and, and we don't like what's being asked of us, we know what we ought to do, but we don't like it, we love to raise our hand and interject with our unique circumstances, which should exempt us from what, we are, what you're asking me to do, right? So he is, and that's what we do. So he's anticipating people saying, well, what would you say to somebody who, like me, uh, finds themselves married to, and he's like, let me just address this uh, up front, and I'll just go through all of these different scenarios so that you don't do this on, on your own way. And then in verse 17, we see this shift uh, towards something different. Here's what it says. Uh, after all of these specific admonishments, then he says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. There's like a, a growing thing of like to be assigned to something and then to be called to something are two different things. This then is the rule that I lay down in all the churches, meaning this is not exclusive to Corinth. This is just something I, a standard of living when I write to the Galatians uh, or the church in Galatia, when I write to the church in Ephesus, when I write to the church uh, in Colossae, uh, these, are, these are things that I just tend to live by. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, I think the best way to kind of do this thing is to live out your faith wherever you find yourself at. In Colossians 3, uh, chapter 23, uh, or sorry, chapter three, verse 23, he's gonna say, whatever it is that you find yourself doing, do it as if working unto the Lord, not unto men. In that specific context, he's talking about employment at jobs, and I've talked about that in a series often. I think this verse also applies to work. Even though the context leading up to this has been about marriage, he's basically pulling a general principle into a practical moment for a second. Uh, and, and I think that we would say, let's, let's read this verse through the lens of our work. And there might be some who'd be like, Brent, you can't do that. You can't take a passage to talk about marriage and then not bring in the context of it. Well, except that right after this verse, he shifts the conversation immediately to circumcision. So I don't think that this, and that's a whole different series. Come back for that in two weeks. Well, it'd be great. Um, He's doing this already. He's already taking, he's taking something specific. Then he makes a general inference this, and then he's going to play it out in a practical example somewhere else. And so I think this is totally natural for us to be like, all right, what does this mean for our work? What is this, how does this, what are the implications then for your work and the job that you find yourself doing? He would say, there are some of you who find yourself called to something, right? He says, for those who find themselves just as God has called them. He's laying out example uh, that in that word there is vocatio or, or like where we get the vocal cords or like the, we, we have seen people, you've met people who they do their work with such commitment and passion for their job that when they say, I just felt called to this or God called me to this, you would say he must have because I can't imagine doing what you do like for the pay that you get, right? There are people who work in nonprofit industries who, who do amazing work for the sake of general other people who could make so much more in the private sector, but they feel a special, unique calling in this way. So when they say, I feel called, I genuinely believe uh, that there are some people who are called to their work. Now, I don't think everybody has a vocational call to their work. So if you're like, I've never felt called to this. In fact, in my job, it would be silly for me to be like, Brent, I just feel called to being a divorce lawyer. You know what I mean? Like it'd be a, like a weird profession to be called to, but, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there's, there's work in that way. I don't know. But I, if, if you, if you have gotten into your job and don't feel like what I'm doing, I'm doing this as a response to an either audible call of God or just a general, I felt inclined to this. That's fine. Paul would say, I get it. Some people are called other people. He would say have been assigned there by God, which 
There's a way to in, like read, what, what does it mean to be assigned there by God? In, in my opinion, it's like, this is how the cards came out. This is what the dealing thing played out. Like I believe in a God who orchestrates circumstances behind the scene, whether I'm aware of it or not aware of it. I don't think anything surprises him. I don't think everything is specifically ordained and, and uh, this is exactly what he wanted. I think that there's some free will in there, but I think he's kind of like got his whole hands in the process and nothing surprises him anyway. So wherever you find yourself working and whatever you find yourself doing for work, even if it wasn't a vocational call, I don't feel called, there's still God orchestrating some of the behind the scenes things to make it happen. Like you felt like somebody came and found you at this job and, and or this is just the, the, I went to school. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I looked at a, a offering of all the different degree programs and I honestly, I pointed and I'm like, I just, I guess I'll do that. Criminal justice. Here we go. Uh, or whatever. Like I get it that that doesn't feel pointed and it doesn't feel intentional, but I really do feel like Paul's going, it doesn't matter if it feels overtly called or you just find yourself assigned to this. You are called to live this out according to your set of beliefs, that there is, a, there is a, an inherent calling, a Christian calling, a way of Christ sort of way of doing your job, whatever you find yourself doing. This is a rule that he says, I've laid out for all of my churches, that nobody is, in the, is exempt from this. This is not Corinth really needs this. Colossae is fine. Everyone gets this message. In fact, in Colossae, he would say whatever, he would be, get a lot more specific when it came to employment. Whatever you find yourself doing, work at it as it unto the Lord, not unto men. Because God's always watching, he's always doing this. So I think it goes into a more specific uh, thing. But this is a, this is a, uh, a mindset that invites us to say, don't just look at your work as something, as a means of your own advancement, whether that comes to money, status, power, and influence, but also to the contribution to the good of all, that whatever it is that you find yourself doing, there is going to be some sort of element that is going to be not just about you, but beyond you. And there's something that is, uh, that as a Christian, is going to influence you towards doing this in a bigger level, how is what I do good for the flourishing of other people? Tim Keller wrote a, a fantastic, he's a pastor uh, in New York City um, who wrote a fantastic book called Every Good Endeavor. It's a, a, a book on work. And if you're struggling with work and this is scratching an itch, but there's more then I highly recommend that book. But here's a quote from it. If the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, which again, to adapt and survive, we've made it about ourselves. I'm just trying to get through this, make a bunch of money and retire early. Then our work inevitably comes less about the work and more about us. Our aggressiveness will eventually become abuse, our drive will become burnout, and our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. But if the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, our ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. And we are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. If, you survive, if, if your methodology is simply survive and adapt, survive and adapt for yourself and what it is that I can pull out of it, don't be surprised when that becomes self-destructive, when ego gets involved, when it comes all about you and, and all of a sudden like you're making decisions that aren't really for your own benefit or the benefit of the workplace or whatever. It's just, it's, it becomes gross and it's made you into this monster. You find yourself saying, I don't like what this job is making me become. I don't like the parent I've become because of this. I don't like the husband or the wife that I've become because of this work. I don't like what I do. I dread it, but I'm doing it, but I'm good at it, which also sends mixed messages to me. And then all of a sudden, it becomes like this self-destructive mess in this way. And Jesus, and this, 
uh, this take is saying, when we are able to shift our focus away from just the adapt and survive short-term mentality of this into something bigger, you're actually better for it. You're a better employee as a result of this, that your work matters and your faith should impact the way that you do your work. One of the major cultural shifts in church history took place during a, a period called the Protestant Reformation. Um, it took place just over 500 years ago. In fact, we celebrated the 500 year anniversary not too long ago, but um, it happened uh, in Germany, Europe, uh, and it was Martin Luther was involved, John Calvin was were involved, all of those people. And it was a protest against the way that the church was currently being run. We're trying to, every once in a while, uh, things get kind of off kilter enough to the spot where we'd be like, all right, enough's enough. We got to figure things out. We got to pull back. We got to draw things back. So we're protesting against the way that you're doing things. We want to reform them into a different way of doing things. Protestant Reformation, that's what we get. So he nails 95 theses on the wall of the Wittenberg church and says, listen, selling indulgences as like a get out of jail free card, that's not cool. That's not right. Um, the authority structure of the church and, and, and Pope and hierarchy deal, that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's a priesthood of all believers. Uh, one of the big elements uh, of it was, work that the church at that point had kind of devolved, because I don't think it had always been that way, but devolved into saying religious work is done in monasteries uh, and, and done by nuns, and you take a vow and you come and do church work, and that is religious work. All of the other work that you do is not really religious. You allow us to do like this work, and then you take care of your own stuff, support us. It's like this division between work, and Luther comes on, and he goes, no, 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 no. When we look at what Jesus invited us to, when we look at Paul's interpretation of stuff, I cannot read Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and not think that all work is God's work. Don't just categorize Christian work as actual work. And then this is like, we're just struggling through our sin and making these things happen. Um, all work is Christian work. And then he begins to, he pulls what we have from him, are a, a collection of, of some writings. And in one of these writings is this look on his sermons that he wrote in response to some Psalms. Psalms chapter 147 says this, verse 12 through 14. Extol the Lord Jerusalem, praise your God Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies uh, you with the finest of wheat. In other words, he's painting this picture. The psalmist is trying to say, Jerusalem, like this, oftentimes um, psalms and, and prophetic sort of poems like this uh, present pictures of what ought to be, right? A city whose walls are full, whose people are happy, whose mouths are, are fed, whose babies are, are you know, born and, and raised in, in the safety of, uh, of the proximity of security of a wall in the city and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, what, what are we hoping for in this? When we, when we ask for this, when we, when we work through this psalm as kind of a yearning and a hoping for things, what are we hoping for? Are we hoping for a God who magically snaps his fingers and all of a sudden these walls are built and this place is safe and it's a, it's a good community to be able to raise a family? And, and he would say, no, a, th a theocracy in this way isn't like God snaps his fingers and all of a sudden this stuff is created. He's like, these things take time. Those walls don't build themselves. What do we want when this, with this? Here's, here's what Martin Luther says specifically. By the word bars, we must understand not only the iron bar that a smith can make, but everything else that helps protect us. It's not just the bars that make it work, such as good government, good city ordinances, good order and wise rulers, all of these things, these are all a gift from God that when we yearn for this and want this, it's not that we want a miracle out of it. The, perhaps the miracle is that enough human beings work together with all of our different egos and issues to kind of make these things happen. He's, he's trying to say this, we don't, we're not asking God to change our city into this magically overnight. We wake up and all of a sudden things are fixed. 
God, give us the wisdom and the wherewithal and the, the strategy to be able to create these things, to work towards these things, to collaborate to, with one another, to be able to make these things begin to happen, to find our work, to see our work as what we do, all of it is God's work. That God's work doesn't happen within the four walls of the church. It's what happens when we build communities that promote flourishing for humanity of all sorts. That's what he says is healthy, good, honest work. So the way of Jesus then for us would be this, to honor God by loving our neighbors and serving them through our work. What is a good picture of work for you? What does it mean to integrate your faith in your work? What is it to rethink the product? What, it is, what is it that you do? What would you say you do around here? I do what I can do to love my neighbors and serve them through my work. That I've been able to kind of distinguish, I'm not just serving tables. I'm creating environments for people to come and enjoy through their leisure time conversation with their partner, with their family, with their kids or with their friends. And I'm making this a positive experience. I don't know what kind of a week that they've had, but I'm gonna make this the best meal of their week, right? I'm gonna see this as an opportunity to you know, ha have them flourish. When I'm building this house, I'm not just building a house to sell it to make a profit. I'm building a home where somebody can raise a family and raise these kids to be healthy and, and, and productive and, and, all, and flourish in, in all of the different ways that require flourishing. I don't just manage like uh, 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 permits for the city. I'm, I'm making sure that these projects are done appropriately, that, uh, that the people who are assigned to do the work follow through with the work, that everything is thought of, that I'm, I'm making sure that it's not just a rubber stamping process. I'm making sure that the work is done to the expectation that, that it's trying to be. I'm making sure nobody gets ripped off or if it gets about a step along the way. There are ways to see what you do as a way of flourishing in society, not just for your own personal benefit, although that's included, right? I want you to be able to do things and make money and retire and think about yourself and all that kind of stuff. That's great. Uh, all that's fine. You, you, you should, you should uh, reap the benefits of, of, of the work that you've put in, but I also don't miss out. Don't just devolve into that because that's what work and the, the system of work has trained and beat into you. Think beyond that. Go beyond this. The way of Jesus says, yes, but there's an, an additional uh, element or quality. If you lift up your eyes a little bit longer to see that what you're doing has an impact on the world around you and the way that you, when, when Jesus says, people know you're my disciples, but the way that you love one another, that includes what you do for work. That includes what you do with your time and your energy. Even if you are retired and your job is to be a good grandpa or pop pop to whatever grandkids that you have, right? What am, what am I doing that is making a difference, not just for myself, that it's not ultimately about my pleasure. And that's the, that's the only end game in all of this, but something beyond this. And am I doing it well? Now I wanna conclude with this. Uh, work as a ministry of competence, competence within your work. One of the ways that you can love others through your work is by doing it well to the best of your abilities and then some. If God's purpose for your job is that you serve the human community, then the way to serve God best is to do the job as well as it can be done. Not only would I say there's, a, you know, it's, work isn't just about yourself, it's about something else, but also with that, those people, we deserve the best out of you. You deserve the best, uh, you deserve the best from other people's work. Um, I was watching with my wife, um, that hard knock show uh, about the Detroit Lions and training camp and all that kind of stuff. And one of the guys cheated on the, you know, di didn't give 100% to his, in, in his efforts in, in one of the practices and the coach pulls him aside and there's this video of him talking to this guy going, you're cheating yourself. When you do this, when you cut corners, when you don't do, put in the hard work, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating yourself. And, and, and 
the connection that he didn't make that I, I, you know, I think would be a part of this is you're cheating not only yourself, but you're cheating the team. You're cheating beyond this. There's like, there's more to this than just this. Like what, when you cheat, there's an impact on, on all of us with this. So you need to do your job well as a result of this. I close with, um, uh, uh, there's a, a British public theologian named Dorothy Sayers who wrote in post-World War II uh, sort of economy stuff. Um, she was a contemporary of like C.S. Lewis at the time. And at that t- period of time, uh, the war had just concluded and all of the men who had gone off to war were now integrating back home and were gonna reintegrate back into the British workforce. And so it was you know, common at that time to be like, what are we gonna do with all of these people who need jobs and work? And they've, they've, curr- they've been doing work in wartime that makes it really easy for them to make connections between finding meaningful like purpose in my in my work. What I do is it was, it was very obvious. You are saving humanity, right? From the the destruction of the, of the of the evil empire, the axis or whatever, right? So it was very clear for them what it is to make a connection. Now you're going to expect them to come back and work in factories and to not have a clarity of goodness about their work. Like we got to be careful. We got to make sure we're having them see there's just as much goodness in their work uh, as it was so clear when they were fighting off uh, Hitler and all of his all of his things. So here's what she said in uh, a piece called Why Work. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. So... Taking that, fast forwarding it about 50, 60 years, my encouragement to you, and, and if you see me as your pastor and this is a church and I'm, I'm, you know whatever, it would not be enough for me to be like, hey guys, make sure you keep it together on Fridays and Saturdays, okay? And make sure you're here on Sundays at 9, 15, and 10, 30. You know, we've got this thing and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Like, who cares? Like that, that, if, if, if that's the point of it, then all, all I'm teaching you or training you to do, our product or our environment always, right, um, is simply to treat, we adapt and survive our work as an outlet for a means to an end, and that end is leisure, time, and retirement, right? Um, but that's not what I want you to do. I want you to take whatever talents, gifts, and abilities you have, steward them for the goodness of the creation, the flourishing of others, including yourself, and I want you to work hard, and I want you to make good tables, or whatever it is that you do. So I don't know what it is that you do. Maybe you don't either. So that's why question number one's in place. So my response would be figure it out. Tie it to a bigger picture. Move beyond the falsity that work is not the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something that we do in order to obtain money and leisure. Get beyond that. That's an immature, from a Christian standpoint, way of viewing work. And lastly, make damn good tables, whatever it is that you do. That's what I want for you. And the closing thought is your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called and equipped you to do it, no matter what kind of work that it is. Let me say that one more time. Your daily work, whatever that is, is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called and equipped you to do it, no matter what kind of work that it is. So let's go make good tables. Let's pray. Father, 
our prayer is that you would guide us into the truth of this in our uh, line of work and whatever it is we find ourselves doing Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever uh, our schedule is, uh, guide us to be able to see, to lift up our eyes behind you know, what we are told, what it is that we do, and then uh, see it not as working for uh, men, but unto you. And let us take the wisdom of Paul and his writings to the, to the church in Corinth and the church in Colossae and uh, apply it to ourselves in the Tri-Cities in 2022 in our workplace. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.